Welcome, welcome, welcome to Truthless, a sarcastic Stormlight podcast, where we have an unfiltered discussion of Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight archives. We go light on analysis and heavy on the hot takes. Thanks for joining us. I'm Anthony, and I am joined by my lovely and wonderful co-host, Josh. How's it going, Josh? It is going great, Anthony. I'm very excited for our first episode to start off on this journey. So we're going to forego traditional literary analysis that you would learn in like English class or see on other podcasts and just pick apart the books for anything that interests us and put things from our brains into your ears. Yep, yep, yep. We're just some college kids talking about these books that we really like. We love talking about them to each other, and now we're bringing that to you. Mm-hmm. And we will do our best here to keep it as spoiler-free as possible, but we can't 100% promise anything because we may allude to a few things that come in the future, but we'll do our best. Indeed. And today we're going to be starting with The Way of Kings, and we're going to be going from the beginning through hopefully the prologue. Um, we'll see how far we get. You ready? Yes, let's get started with this cover. The cover is dope. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. So this is assuming you're looking at the American version of the cover, which has an unknown man pointing a sword at uh, another spearman. Right. And what I think is the coolest part of this cover is if you open it up and see the entire thing at once, you get the the weather. The, you see this giant mm-hmm. storm coming in. And, I mean, they talk about this all the time in the books. Like, the storm is a big part of the, the culture of the planet that they're on. But... It's just, it's so vast, and it's so intimidating. And I feel like this this cover does even a better job explaining visually than any written description we get in the books. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. You know, you read the back, and, like, it's a, it's a pretty cool little summary, or the inside cover if you have the hardcover version, but you're like, man, why is it called the Stormlight Archive? And then you see the massive storm <laughs> on the cover, and you're like, oh, I think I figured it out. Ah. Yes, and a fun fact about covers, um, pretty much lots of different countries have different covers for the Stormlight Archive, and the Chinese one in particular is super awesome, and I recommend uh, that you guys go look up the Chinese cover for the Way of Kings. It was my phone background for a while. It's super cool. It's like this stained glass mosaic almost sort of thing. It's very awesome. Yeah, I had no idea that existed until like a week ago, but then I looked it up, and Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, this one's dope. That one's also dope. Yep, so you're welcome for your new uh, phone background there, Anthony. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll be changing it thusly. But Josh, the real question about this cover that no one seems to know the answer to is, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I actually uh, have the answer for you. You do? For those you don't know who didn't watch the trailer, I have read all the books in the Cosme series, and Anthony is still kind of um, working through them. So I have lots of just random knowledge about the series because I have, like, look through the subreddits and the wikis and all that um and yes so the mystery man on the cover is actually unknown so like i've i've looked all over the place all over the internet and everybody's just like nobody knows who this guy is like it could be one of the main characters but it's very ambiguous like i don't think brandon sanderson from what i've seen has ever commented on it so it's just a random warrior which is weird because on the other covers like it's like you you look at it it's like oh you know i know who that is oh and the other thing like he has a sword and a flag. You're never going to have the sword and the flag. If you're in one of these like special super suits, <laughs> you're you're not going to be holding the flag. That's not your job in the army. Yeah. Brandon needs to read up on his military roles yeah, because honestly. the standard bear traditionally is not a, a combatant on the field. Okay, so unless you got any other comments, I think that just about wraps up the cover. No, I think that does it for me. All right, so we flip to the 
inside covers. Yeah. And so let me, let me tell you guys what I see when I first picked up these books like three years ago or however long it was. I looked and I see this chart of like all these symbols with strange creepers, creatures in the back and I see this map and I say, okay, cool. And it spent about one second looking at them and immediately flipped to the next page because I didn't know what the hell these were. Yeah, and except then you go back after you read this and like every circle means something. Like mm-hmm. those, even those creatures in the background, we now know that those are like these mythical beings and all the heads decorating the frame of the, like the border. Yes, those are actually characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very cool how they managed to sort of add all those stuff in. But like, I don't know, that's something I do with most books I read. Like they always add the map. Right, like that's something the fantasy authors have to do. They have to add the map. I like the map, but it's like, okay, well, I, I don't know where you like the map. Yeah, I like okay, the well, map. The map, I'm indifferent. <laughs> I have a hot take on the map. Do you want to hear what my hot take is? Yes, I'd like to hear your hot take on. The okay, map. so here's the thing. So, it looks like it looks like it's swirling. It looks like the whole continent is sort of going around in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a storm in and of itself. Well, that's kind of the first time Ooh. I noticed that. It looks like almost a hurricane on a map. That's true. That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's super cool. And here's the thing. To me, it looks like... So I'm a I'm like an environmental science major, and I just took atmosphere and weather. So I'm looking at this, and like that looks like it's turning counterclockwise. Yeah. Land doesn't do that, though. It doesn't just like swirl on itself. But you know what does do that is water. So... What I thought about when I was looking at this cover was there's this other like realm. There's like the physical realm, and there's the cognitive realm. And explained later on in the book. Yeah, it's explained later on. But one of the features of the cognitive realm is like everything that is land in the physical realm is like water there, and vice versa. So the hot take that I have is that the continent looks the way it does because there's a big ocean gyre in the cognitive realm and that's like this giant current that that just spins along really vast expanses of the ocean a gyre is yeah gyre gyre that's with a g g y r e Mm. new vocab word (laughs) you're welcome i I was looking at this and my my geology brain said hmm Mm -hmm. yes well i so when i looked at this map i said oh look a map and then i flipped to the next page like i said earlier but now that you say that um, that seems like, you know, seems like a pretty good explanation. Thank you. I try. For why this is swirling. But I, I have my own explanation for as to why it looks like that. What is it? And it's because the author thought it looked cool. Damn, Josh, your logic is flawless. Yeah, so uh, a little, one little other detail I thought that was kind of cool. Instead of east and west, they have stormward and leeward. And that's actually because the, um, the Everstorm in the book's um, flows from the east side of the continent to the west side. So instead of east, they have stormward, because that's where the storm comes from. And instead of west, they have leeward, because that's where the, the storm, like, leaves, or, like, that, that that's the horizon where the storm um, travels. That was cool. But one thing I did notice was the first time, or, like, the first couple times he writes it, he always puts stormward and leeward instead of east and west. But then as the books go on, like, sometimes east slips in and you get the sense that they do use all four regular directions but when you're being fancy or maybe if you're a geology student i don't know then you use yeah <laughs> and leeward. 
Okay, so good to move on to the prelude then. Yeah. So, uh, the prelude to the Stormlight Archive is how it's titled. And what happens is the prelude is we're introduced to a character named Kallik, um, and he is sort of exploring a battlefield right after a massive battle has happened. And we learn that it's um, the war between Kallik's side and another side that we're not really sure of has just ended, and it is the the last in a sequence of many wars that have happened up until this point. And Kallik and his friend, he meets his friend Jezrian after surveying the... Uh, the slaughter of the battle, and Jezrian tells him that um, they're not going to do it anymore. And it's we learn that Kallik and Jezrian and eight others, so ten total, um, after these wars, they go back to some other like strange place to be tortured um, for a while until the next war seemingly occurs. And Kallik and Jezrian are like burnt out, and it you you can tell based on like Kallik's um, narrations that he is like sort of sick of this, and it is revealed that Jezrian is also, like, um, even though he appears regal, he's also um, just tired, and he's going a little insane because of this torture, so nine of the ten leave the final member to be tortured on his own, apparently, and they um, walk off, and that, that is the end of the prelude. Rough. Yes, it's very... Um, metal way to start the series <laughs> yes it is yeah and i have to say we start off and the first sentence calic rounded a rocky stone ridge and stumbled to a stop before the body of a dying thunderclass the enormous stone beast lay on his side rib-like protrusions from his chest broken and cracked the monstrosity was vaguely skeletal in shape with unnaturally long limbs sprouted from its granite shoulders the eyes were deep red spots on its arrowhead face as if created by fire during with the with burning within deep within the stone they faded. That is how you start a damn book. Yeah, honestly. Let me tell you. You start <laughs> off with a giant stone skeleton monster with fire eyes <laughs> that has been killed. That not only means in you know this new world you're being introduced that there are massive stone fire eye monsters. There's also things that can kill them. That's crazy. That makes me want to just, okay, all right, we're in. Dial in. It's super metal. Yeah, definitely, like, reading the, the prelude and the prologue, there's just so much cool shit that happens right off the bat. And then, I mean, you get into the actual book, and it's a little slower, but, he yeah, he really starts it off with a bang. Yeah. And then, just, like, two paragraphs later, Calix says, uh, if he'd been killed by hands like those before, and it hasn't been pleasant, of course, dying really was. And you're like, oh! That he's died before like that's crazy immortal beings too now along with crazy magic and giants but but josh let me let me take you back to the first paragraph for a moment because you read something mm-hmm. that uh sparked my my geology alarm when you said geology alarm went off uh unnaturally long limbs that sprouted from granite shoulders now I don't know if you knew this, but granite is like you have a problem with the granite. Oh, I I'm do. Guessing. Oh, yeah. I do. Oh, yeah, he does. Granite is like a specific type of rock that only happens in certain places, and the way he says shoulders leads me to believe that like the rest of this stone guy isn't granite. So if so, how do you get like such a small piece of granite that it's only the thing's shoulders? Or conversely, how big is this thing that its shoulders alone make up an entire granite deposit. It's it's mind-boggling. And obviously, if Brandon Sanderson had been a geology major, we would be having these problems. But we got to work with what we got, I guess. So, as, as a non-geology major, I, I can't really give a solution there to that problem. 
Um, but as a fantasy reader, I can say that uh, magic is probably going to be your solution there. That's a good go-to. But yeah, um, and sort of a almost a tangent, I recently started reading the Wheel of Time series. Oh, yeah. And my god, that series, like the first like 25 pages were like some girl in a village, like doing village tasks. And it's just like, compare that to a freaking like immortal being with a freaking giant monster. It's like, it's not even close. Well, Brandon Sanderson just, he didn't he like finish the Wheel of Time? Yes, so the author of the Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan, passed away, and he sort of chose Brandon Sanderson to finish the series for him. Okay, so how many how many books is that series? Uh, I think there's like 15 or 16, and oh, Brandon did like the last two or three. Okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yes, anyways, back to, to the prelude. Oh yeah, so another thing, like they're throwing all sorts of, like you got giant rocky guys with geologically uh, questionable shoulders, um, you got immortal dude who's been killed several times, and then it gets to uh, many of the bodies were human, many were not blood mixed, red, orange, violet, so that's just another, like, and by this point we're four paragraphs in, and we're like, alright, I can't keep track of all of this, it's just cool and I'm gonna move forward. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, oh, other races, too. Add that to the cool things chalkboard. But yes, oh, and then another cool sentence that I read. Even some sections of rock smoldered. The Dustbringers had done their work well. I read that and was like, well, I guess the Dustbringers is my favorite group of something now, because that sounds awesome. And they are still my favorite order. Back in the day, when I didn't know anything about this series, well, I was reading Mm -hmm. this book, and there's like these ten groups of people. And Josh mm-hmm. was like, the Dustbringers are my favorite. I was like, oh, I guess we learn more about them later. And Josh was like, well, not really. But that one line at the beginning is so badass. Yes. It's a little frustrating, but whatever. At least we have this cool line that they did their job well. Okay, so then, um, you know, after we do a little bit of world building there, um, Kalik meets his friend Jezrian. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're introduced to Shard Blades. Oh, yeah. So... I'll explain the concept of shard blades. They're basically just super fancy, super rare, super badass swords that um, they can cut through anything like easily with no resistance. Mm-hmm. And also, if they touch you, it like, well, it says it in the prologue, but instead of cutting flesh, it severs the soul. Very cool. So, like, if it hits your arm, your arm is now useless. If it hits your spine, your whole self is now useless aka dead yes and um actually in the um in the prelude it mentions um swords sort of implanted in the ground but uh Calic mentions that these blades were weapons beyond power of power beyond even shard blades we got super fancy shard blades and then we got like super duper fancy these other ones and so yep Kalik and Jezrian sort of um, jump into a conversation about how this sucks and how the rest of their the others have departed and how they can't do this anymore, how they've endured centuries, perhaps millennia of torture, and you're like, oh my god, these guys have been tortured forever, that sounds like it sucks. And then Jezrian's like, leave your sword. A decision has been made, it is time for the Oath Pact to end, and the, the Oath Pact, that's capital O, Oath Pact. So you know it's something important there. Yeah, and I like how, like, every time one of these wars is fought, all, all ten of these dudes have to go to to hell, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I like the description of Jezreel because at the beginning when you're meeting him, it's like, oh, he's very stately looking. He's like the leader of these ten people. And then a page later, it says this man was hanging uh, by a cliff from a thread. And you're like, oh, God, even even the even the boss isn't doing so hot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then, um, you know, they survey the battlefield with all the corpses and we see our first, um, you know, sort of group of people that isn't Calic and Jezrean. One group walked past four men in their ragged tanned skins or shoddy leather, joining a powerful figure built in silver plates, amazingly intricate. Such a contrast. It's our first introduction to shard plate, the magical armor that protects its user from essentially all harm sans shard blades. Right, yeah, and they make a point of pointing out that you have, like, your joe schmo who's wearing like what a leather vest and then you have your your fancy shard plate so there's like a wide wide disparity between uh, people with shards and everyone mm-hmm. else they mentioned that um presumably one of the others of the ten town will stay behind to be tortured and jezrean says better that one man should suffer than ten the basic idea of the the oath pact and, and I mean, we're still learning more about this in the fourth book, but mm-hmm. the idea is these ten people who are super special hold off, like, the flow of bad guys into the world by, you know, surviving torture, and nine of them have had it, and they're out, and they're leaving this one last guy to, to sort of carry the team on his back. Mm-hmm. And we see how that goes. Yep. And um, so at the end, Jezrean and Kallik round their stones into the blade and walk off, um, presumably to, you know, not be tortured for eternity. Hello, this is Editing Anthony, and I just wanted to pop in to point out that Josh made a little goof with his words there. What he meant to say was that they rammed their blades into the stone. Anyway, I now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. And I actually, I have a huge problem with this, um, because, you know, these, these guys seem like they're pretty smart, um, and they know that they're wielding weapons of immense power, and they just decide, okay, let's just ram our swords into the ground and walk away. Like, okay, like, I get, I get it, Brandon, like, it, it's cool imagery, and there's a couple, bunch of cool fan art out there of, like, you know, the ten sword, nine swords in a circle, uh, on this, like, little hill overlooking a battlefield, and it's like, oh, that's so cool. But okay, but any idiot could walk up and grab this sword and become, like, basically Superman and just, you know, become, like, a dictator or whatever. Like, why, why are they just leaving their swords here? Why wouldn't you keep the sword, first of all? Like, there's been no justification that says, like, oh, they have to jam their swords into a rock to not go back to Braze. Like, that, that's not... They never said that. Never explained. Um, so, but fine. You don't want to keep your sword, right? Whatever. It's like, oh, it's symbolic of the torture or whatever. Then just... Like, throw it in the ocean. Like, hide it in a rock. Like, you just, you don't want it to just, it's like, oh, anybody can pick it up. And we figure out later kind of who picked it up. Um, but it's like, why'd you... That'd be too easy, John. Yeah, it's, but it's like, it's stupid. Like, keep your <laughs> keep your damn sword. If I was them, I got I got tortured, I, I'd keep my freaking sword. <laughs> but I, in their defense, they're all basically insane at this point. <laughs> and they've survived thousands of years of torture. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, they, they, they're they capable of thoughts. Like, this Kallik has, like, a... He seems normal. He's just like, oh, he's a little shaken. 
You know, it's just like a thousand years of torture, right? That that shouldn't. Oh yeah, no sweat. <laughs> that shouldn't. I mean, that's never been proven, like in real life, but that that shouldn't <laughs> make it so you can't pick up your damn super weapon. Like Jezreen, he's still like a king, dude. You know, not one of these nine were like, okay, actually, I should keep my sword. It's like Josh, they all, all nine were like, let's just throw it away. After you go through a thousand years of torture, let's have this conversation again, and then. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> When we meet in hell, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Anyway. Book one, The Way of Kings, 4,500 years later. Yeah, so we get into, well, we don't get into the actual book yet because now after the prelude, there's a prologue. Um, but it's mm-hmm. 4,500 years later after this big war, um, and here's here's the sitch. We got a map. We got a map of Alethkar, which we learn is sort of like the main country. Or Another the map I skipped. Main characters are from. I have a problem with this map too, but we'll get to that later. Um, and so the plot of the prologue is as follows: You have wait. I take it back. First of all, the prologue is huge and dense and so much world building. We could probably spend three hours on it and still have more to say. So every sentence is like an important thing. Exactly. So we're not going to cover everything in this episode. We will spare you from diving into every word on the page. But the the gist is this. You're introduced to this character named Zeph. And he is at a feast. The feast is celebrating a peace treaty between the nation of Alethkar and this other group of people that they're calling the Parshendi. And the Parshendi are sort of depicted as like a tribe of people that have just been discovered um, and they're forming new relationships and everyone's excited to have a peace treaty with them, et cetera, et cetera, hence the feast. Uh, but what you learn about Zeth is that he has been hired by the Parshendi to kill the king of Alethkar at this feast. So not looking good for the peace treaty, but we follow Zeth as he goes through the the feast he meets people that are important later he sees things that are important later he gives you a lot of world building on how this universe and country work um and eventually he gets into the hunting down the king and you learn that he is magical he can do all sorts of magical things which we'll get into in a second um and he has one of these shard blades he beats up a bunch of guards he finds the king and eventually kills the king. And that is the end of the prologue. But let's go back and, and get into a little more detail because there is plenty to pick from. I'm sure all our geology buffs are very excited to hear your take oh, here. Oh, d- just brace yourself. Actually, this is less of a geology take and more of like a sociopolitical take. What we learn about the Alethi um, as the book goes on is that they're like a very warring nation they like to take over things and claim that's like their main nation trait they're tall and they like to go to war yeah exactly they're they're sort of like the mongolians they just take over everything (laughs) hello again editing anthony here and i just wanted to clarify that when i said mongolians a second ago i was referring to like the the mongol empire of the 13th century you know like genghis khan and his crew because in high school and in John Green's Crash Course World History, they're always talking about how the Mongols just took over everything. I was not making any sort of statement whatsoever about our many lovely Mongolian listeners or their friends and family. Anyway, back to the podcast. But if you look at the map on this first page, 
you'll realize that the nation of Alethkar is right next to this giant-ass area called the Unclaimed Hills. The name of the, name of the, the hills is Unclaimed, and you share a multiple hundred-mile-long border with the Alethi, whose whole thing is claiming land. <laughs> Why are those hills unclaimed? Yeah, you would think that uh, one of these warlords would march out there and claim a couple of those hills. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, there is like a mountain range. Okay, but come on. The more you know about this book, the more suspicious the unclaimed hills becomes. Point to the geology majors out there. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have our prologue, and it starts off with a cool picture of a dude that... It's Seth, um, and it starts off with this strange quote, which, the love of men is a frigid thing, a mountain, steam, only three steps from ice. Basically, I read that and was like, don't know what the hell that is, and then just start reading. And eventually, I just started ignoring them, because it didn't make any sense. They Like, I was like, why is this relevant? Eventually, you kind of learn why it's relevant, but it's all kind of like, eh. Every chapter has one of these, um, yeah. what's it called, epigraph, right? Yes, yeah, so they're the pre-chapter things are called epigraphs. Right, so every chapter in all of these Stormlight Archive books has one of these, and mm-hmm. basically they don't mean anything until you go read other stuff in the Cosmere and come back yes. to it. Yes, so the, the epigraphs and the preludes, um, Brandon Sanderson said, he put them in there uh, in order to add in like Cosmere references and stuff into these books without making people who haven't read the other... He, he didn't want to make people who haven't read his other Cosmere books sort of feel like they need to read those to enjoy these books. So mm-hmm. the interludes and the epigraphs are sort of like little Easter eggs for the other Cosmere readers. So they're not... Most of them aren't really integral to uh, the plots. But it does do... He does a good job with that because now that I've read some other Cosmere stuff, these are yeah. like interesting and fun. And I definitely recommend if you haven't checking back on those once you've read more... Cosmere yes, stuff. one in specific uh, in Words of Radiance is just so amazing and just blows your mind. Speaking of blowing your mind, the first mm-hmm. line of this prologue, true to form, I, is badass. I want to get it tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> Seth, son, son, Villano, truthless of Shinovar, wore white on the day he was to kill a king. Please, dear God, do get that tattooed on God, your forehead. It's so amazing. Every single word is like awesome it's like seth son son volano it's like whoa that's a naming convention that's not conventional it's like i've this guy's a fantasy character that sounds cool i want to meet the people where he's from and then it says truthless of shinovar and it's like oh shinovar a fun place i wonder if that's on that map that i skipped over and then truthless what's truthless oh that's the name of our podcast podcast you're listening to yeah but what is it in context of these books and then he wore white on the day he was to kill a king. And it's like, oh, he's wearing white. But this motherfucker's killing a king. That's <laughs> crazy. I'm so excited to read this prologue. And he does that consistently. Like, you get a couple more uh, point of views from Zeth throughout mm-hmm. this book. And every single one, the the starting line, is it could be a poem. It's yes. really good. Seth is my favorite character in the Stormlight Archive. Um and I'm very excited because the fifth book, which is slated to come out in like three years, is like his book. Like it's the Seth book, essentially. Um, so I'm very excited. Every chapter we get of him is a treat to me. Something it, it mentions, he did, uh, he's hired to kill a king, but he's not very excited about it. Like he's doing as his masters have required him to do, but 
uh, all throughout this chapter, he's making comments like, "I'm I'm sinning. I'm doing this. This is not a good thing. Yes. I wish one of these guys was competent enough to kill me, so I wouldn't have to do this terrible job." And he's even face palming in his little picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So here we go. He's he's looking through. He's in the party. And another fun line in here is like he's walking around all these drunk people. And he says, their stomachs proving to be inferior wineskins as they flop around the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good line there. He's a very sassy assassin. Oh, and you get your first, like, sort of look at the Parshendi. And you realize, like, oh, this is a fantasy character. Because they have, like, marbled red and black and white skin. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's very cool how he did that. It's not like, oh, it's this is a taller human or a... A shorter human, Tolkien. God, um, no, no offense to Tolkien, he redefined the genre. Um, but it's it's a different take than you see um, from a lot of other um, fantasy series. Howdy, friends. Editing Anthony again, and I just wanted to take a second to address in a little more detail the good and bad of J.R.R. Tolkien's role in the genre of fantasy. Josh is right when he says that he redefined the genre, but now that we're talking about fantasy and putting it up for the world to hear. I think it would be irresponsible for the two of us not to give a little more context. I learned recently that Tolkien specifically modeled the dwarves in Lord of the Rings after Jewish people. And yes, he later praised the Jewish community as skilled and industrious, but there's more nuance to that story. And this one representation has led to a lot of fantasy races embodying Jewish stereotypes in a problematic way. I frankly don't have all the details, and Brandon Sanderson's race representation isn't something we talked about in this particular episode. but. If this is something you're interested in, I highly recommend checking out episode 161 of Potterless. They talk about this issue in depth, and that podcast also happens to be a big part of the inspiration for this one. Anyway, back to Truthless. Mm, yeah, and I, there's plenty to get in with, get into with like, you know, race and class and stuff throughout these books. Mm-hmm. But the first thing we learn is that um, there's the Parshendi, but there's also the Parshmen. And the Parsh men is like the Alethi word for people who look like the Parshendi but don't act like them. So they have this sort mm-hmm. of cast of slaves, basically, um, who mm-hmm. look the same. They have the marbled skin, but they really don't express, like, emotions or, or thoughts. They sort of just do as they're told and don't complain. But then the, the whole big deal with meeting the Parshendi is that they do have, like, a society and have, you know more sapience than you attribute to these uh, Parshman folk. So that's, that raises the question of where's the difference between these two groups? Mm-hmm. Yes, and um, it mentions that the Parshendi, mean, the word Parshendi in Alethi roughly means Parshman who can think. Right. Yes, so um, then, you know, it kind of goes and we're introduced to a couple of characters in sort of the court um, and at one point, he says, but many still celebrated. As he walked, Seth was forced to step around Dalinar Colin, the king's own brother, slumped drunken at a small table. I wonder if he's going to be important for the rest of the series. This whole paragraph where he's beating these people? Yeah. We get, we get Dalinar, we get Jasna, we get Elokar, mm-hmm. and then we get these two mysterious figures yeah. uh, who are dining with Elokar. Okay, so mm-hmm. quick uh, family tree of like the royal family of Alethkar. In this prologue, you got um, Gavilar, who's the king, his brother Dalinar, his two kids, Jasna and Elokar. Mm-hmm. 
And Zeth is basically just not caring about any of these people as he walks yep, by. he's just looking for Gavilar. And he even dismisses these two mysterious figures dining with the king's son as, yes. quote, unimportant. And mm-hmm. if you've read more of the Cosmere, you know that that is the furthest thing from the truth. <laughs> and this tiny throwaway line is like two of the most consequential beings in the, in mm-hmm. the world. Yep. Seth is questions a little bit. He's like, hey, he's Parshman, or Parshendi, rather, wants me to um, kill their king, and I couldn't tell you why, but I guess I have to. So it's like, why does this? Why does Seth have to just kill this king? It's really frustrating, because he does this whole, like, shtick of, like, he's sad, he doesn't want to do this, uh, he doesn't understand why he has to do this, but he's so, like, focused on his goal anyway, he has mm-hmm. no desire seemingly to you know disobey his masters he's like oh this is my lot in life and i have no choice and as a reader that's super frustrating because you're just like dude just don't do it yeah simply do not kill the king yeah as we learn more about his culture it's sort of it's it's like a huge cultural thing that you can't disobey and if you're in his position blah 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 but oh it's it's frustrating yeah um right before we get into the action um Seth passes a man with long gray and black beard, slumped in the doorway, smiling foolishly. Have you seen me? He asks with slurred speech, and then laughs. And you're like, man, that guy seems like a random old drunk. Why did he mention that guy? You could even uh, call that guy unimportant. Yeah, I, I, that would be a, a good adjective to describe him, Anthony. The more I look at this the more... There's so many little details. Like, you read through the first time, and you're like, there's so much stuff. This is so much world-building. And then you read the series, and you read through it the second time, and you're like, there's so much stuff. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we go into... Right before the, uh, the action starts, um, there's some good little sentences here. So uh, Seth was truthless. Today... He was wearing white, white to be bold, white to not blend into the night, white to give warning. For if you were going to assassinate a man, he was entitled to see you coming. Which completely defeats the point. That's what I'm going to, I'll tattoo that on my chin, from like my jaw <laughs> to my chin. That's such a fucking awesome line. Well then, anytime everyone sees you and reads your chin tattoo, they're going to mm-hmm. be like, isn't the point of an assassination to do it secretly? Yeah, and then I'll be like, it's cool. Like, come on. And they'll be like, you know what's not cool? Is that tattoo on your chin. (laughs) Dang, okay. (laughs) I see how it is. Alright, and then we jump into what I refer to as the tutorial level. Yes, and that's a great name for it because what it is is sort of explaining the magic system, or at least a part of the magic system. Zeth is a magical magic boy, and he can do things that no one else appears to be able to do, and he explains them thoroughly as he does them. Yep. So sort of the, the, the structure we learn is that you have this form of energy in this world called Stormlight. It comes from the big storms, and it sort of serves as, like, the people's energy source. Like, they use it for lighting because it makes things glow. Um, they use it for contraptions that you learn about later in the series. But Zeth can use it as magic juice because he breathes it in and then he can do magic. Yep. 
Um, and it's explained that his form of magic is called lashings, and he can essentially sort of reverse the personal gravity of objects, so make things fall up. Um, he can stick things to one another, which isn't exactly gravity, but it's sort of another one of his powers, and he can, like... It's pretty cool. He can run on walls and stuff. And he gets into all sort of mischievous shenanigans with his gravity powers. One thing that I like is he, he gets to this first group of guards that he's going to defeat, and what he does to this one guy is he uses his gravity to make him, to make the guys down the ceiling. So the guy's now, like, sitting on the ceiling as if it were the floor, and the power eventually runs out. But instead of Zeth, like, actively killing this dude, he just sticks a spear up on the floor, and as the magic runs out, the guy falls from the ceiling and impales himself on the spear. And it's brutal. It's like a Roadrunner cartoon, almost. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was an awesome moment. My favorite moment from the little tutorial um, is after he, like, you know, dunks on one of the first guards. Another guard says, What what are you? The guard's voice had lost his certainty. Spirit or man? What am I? Seth whispered, a bit of light leaking from his lips as he looked past the man down the long hallway. I'm sorry. You can get that tattooed, like, on the inside of your lip. Oh yeah, perfect. And like, it's like a was that a not a tramp stamp? No. Like you flip down your lip and you can see it, and it says, on on my upper lip it'll say, "What am I?" And then on my bottom lip it'll say, "I'm sorry." And then on my teeth, one of my teeth, I'll get like a diamond or something with a little picture of Seth's face on it with light leaking from the lips. That would make me a hit at parties, I think. I could just imagine you like hanging out with your brothers and you like mess with one of them and mm-hmm. you're like josh what the hell and then instead of saying i'm sorry you pull down your lip and they have to read your lip tattoo yeah that's what i can do instead of apologizing i can just passively aggressively flip my <laughs> lip down then they have to like squint because it's like it's gonna be tough to read and everything and they're gonna be like oh he's sorry but deep down i'll know that i'm not actually sorry they'll already be distracted by your chin and forehead tattoos <laughs> You're going to be a work of art, dude. Oh, yeah. Dedicated to uh, the prelude and the <laughs> prologue of the Stormlight exactly. Archive is my face. Okay, so Zeth keeps making short work of these guards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he goes through more rules of how the magic works. Yes, and we're introduced to Shard Blades, um, right. which we touched on earlier. Exactly. And I sort of already explained the rules for those. But another thing you learn here is that... It's like lightsabers except big-ass broadswords. And yeah. cooler because you can like summon them with 10 heartbeats and they coalesce out of mist and it's the coolest thing ever it is badass so Zeth gets his shard blade he stomps on these goombas that are guarding the king mm-hmm. oh it says the fun thing about a shard blade did not cut living flesh it severed the soul itself which I might get that one tattooed cause... I mean come on these these things are so cool they're really good I got one of these the scientists need to speed it up <laughs> get us to shard blades please so, oh, he does this one thing where um, he uses his shard blade to, like, cut a rock out of the wall because this whole palace is made out of stone. So he cuts a giant-ass rock out of the wall, and he makes the gravity of the rock go sideways, and these guards come around the corner to find a giant portion of the wall falling on them sideways. Um, and you learn, like, why is he doing all these super gruesome things? Because part of his instructions is to not only kill the king, but be seen doing it and make a big scene out of it. It's an excuse for him to stunt on these hoes. I couldn't have said it better myself. 
But yeah, Brandon gets very creative with his magic. So um, for those of you who don't know, there's essentially two types of magic system uh, in fiction. Um, the two types are hard magic systems and soft magic systems. So a soft magic system, you could think like the Force or Harry Potter. It's a magic system where the rules aren't very defined. They're very loosely defined. So it's like the Force, it's like, oh, you can like move rocks and stuff, but it's also like it flows through you. It's cool, but it, it's, it's just not defined. And the other sort of magic system is called a hard magic system, which is very well defined. Like they have rules. Like you can use, for example, lashings. Like they, they reverse the gravity of something, and that's like, that's it. They don't have like weird spiritual like implications. They just do, you know, this one certain thing. And there's different kinds of lashings, but he, he defines those certain types of lashings, and that's all they do. So I, I think the hard magic systems are more interesting to read when Brandon writes them specifically because he always finds these cool things to do with them that are, you know, within the bounds of the rules that he's created. Yeah, I agree. Those are cool because it's not like necessarily the magic that is super creative, but it's the characters that are creative and that just makes more interesting characters. Yeah, and exactly. that That's one of my favorite things in like any literature is when characters are smart and we're getting up on a point that i i really enjoy about smart characters when the character is just like an idiot like it's just like oh whatever but when they do smart things it's like oh that's like a real person so it, it allows for more opportunities to do things like that it's very cool speaking of cool uh one thing i didn't mention about shard blades is that if you kill someone with them their eyes burn out which at first is just like wow that's unnecessary but i had a theory about that you know how uh like the eyes are the window to the soul or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you know how shard blades sever the soul? Oh, so there go the eyes. Yeah, so you like see what's happening to your soul. Your soul is like burning up if it touches a shard blade. Huh. Yeah, there goes the window. You're going to need an extra house insurance policy for those windows, am I right? I'm cutting that out of the podcast. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Okay. He finally gets to the king. Then we have the boss fight of the tutorial. <laughs> the boss fight of the tutorial level. And as as you were talking about smart characters, something interesting that they do is uh, Zeth gets to like the throne room and he sees these guys ushering out a stooped over figure and Zeth's like, oh, that's the king. Okay, gotta go get him. And into his path walks a big guy in shard plate who's obviously gonna defend the king. But as you learn... And the king is rushed away. Right. As you learned, that was a farce. The characters mm -hmm. had brains and were like, he's obviously trying to kill the king. And he's probably going to try to sidestep a guard in full shards because that's a, a really dangerous foe. So they put the actual king in the shards as a sort of protective measure, hoping that uh -huh. Zeth will, you know, just like knock him out and move on. But that backfires. Zeth figures it out, recognizes that it's the king, and um, beats the boss fight, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a no-hit run, almost. He does very well. But anyways, um, so this is this is my favorite part of the prologue and one of my favorite parts in the book, uh, besides the tattoo moments, obviously, because it's two characters, like, doing smart things. So first of all, Brandon could have very easily just had the king and the shard plate and, like, been like, come at me, assassin, and just had them, you know, fight it out. And it would have been pretty cool, but it's like, okay, whatever. But instead, the king is like, okay, I'm going to use my shard blade and I'm going to try to distract him. I think that's a pretty good plan, um, considering that this assassin just wiped out 20 guards without breaking a sweat. Um, but the part that I really like is Seth. He, he like, you know, bats away the shard bearer, and then he's running after the king. And then he realizes, wait, I bet that that was the king. Like, that that would be the safest play for him in the, in the invincible armor. 
and he was right. And I just think the fact that, you know, Brandon put that sort of little interaction in there, it makes these characters feel more real to me. It makes them feel more realistic. It's like, this is a real character. He's thinking and he's like making uh, good decisions and smart decisions. I agree. But you know what's not a smart decision? What? Zeth's clothing choice. They talk about this boss fight with the king. And at some point, they mention that Zeth is wearing slippers. And at another point, they mention that he kicks this 200-pound metal <laughs> figure into the next room. And I'm like, okay, he can use magic. Yes. But slippers? He's wearing slippers? And he's kicking 200 pounds of metal? In slippers? Okay, I, I see your point, Anthony. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cite what I said earlier. He is doing, trying his hardest to stunt on these hoes. <laughs> Imagine being a king of a nation, and some dude in slippers pulls up <laughs> and mops the floor with your whole army, and you're you're dying, and it's like your kingdom is gone. And it's like all you accomplished is behind you, and the last thing you see as you're lying on the ground and your eyes closing is a pair of goofy-ass slippers <laughs> from your killer, just like, you know, five feet from your face. Like, that is the ultimate stunt from Seth. He is a baller. He, like, steps on your face to push it into the ground, and your last thought is, oh, so soft. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just found that funny. It seems so incongruous. Yeah, he could have at least given him boots or something. But like I said, it's epic flex from Seth. Oh, it's a flex. But yes, Seth defeats uh, the king after a hard-fought battle. And that's pretty much the end of the prologue. Yeah. A couple of names are dropped when Gavilar dies. He's like... Oh, I got it. Gavilar is talking, and he says, You can tell, uh, like, Thydekar and uh, Royan and a couple more names that, like... You learn that Gavilar was sort of expecting assassination... But then Zeth is like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't those guys. It was the Parshendi, and Gavar's like, what? He's he's baffled because he's expecting assassination, but not from the people he's signed a peace treaty with. And that sort of is uh like the uh the mystery that sparks this entire book series because they don't know why they decided to kill the king, but they did. And knowing the Alethi, they're gonna take vengeance. So as the rest of the book unfolds, we get into this war that's sparked by this event, and it, it's mysterious. Mm-hmm. And yes, that wraps up the awesome prologue. And Seth Seth's last words are, as he leans in to uh, Gavilar to whisper his last words are, You just got dunked by a sandals-wearing bald man. And then he... He drops the mic and flies into the distance. Yeah. But okay, um, I think that just about wraps things up here. Yeah, I mean, Gavilar does some cryptic shit at the end, but that doesn't mm -hmm. come into play for like a book and a half, so we can yes. sort of ignore some of that. Um, mm -hmm. And we made it through the, the dense yet very badass prologue. Yes, so um, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back soon with our next episode where we'll tackle the next few chapters of The Way of Kings. Yes, yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sitting through this with us. Um, it was a lot of fun for us. Make sure you follow us on both Instagram and Twitter, both at TruthlessPod, that's T-R-U-T-H-L-E-S-S-P-O-D. And if you have any questions or concerns um, about these books or any hot takes or any opinions, please email us or DM us. Our email is truthlesspod at gmail. 
gmail.com. Um, and if we get, you know, a couple of good responses, we may add in a section at the end of the next episode discussing your hot takes. So thanks for listening. Thank you so much. And as they say in the Stormlight Archives, life before death. Life before death. Thanks for listening to Truthless. Truthless is hosted by Anthony Murphy-Nielsen and Josh Umbrell. It is edited by Anthony Murphy-Nielsen. The social media is run by Josh Umbrell. The art is by Josh Umbrell. And the music is from a royalty-free music website, but it is edited and changed a little bit by Anthony Murphy-Nielsen. As Josh said, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at TruthlessPod and email us at TruthlessPod at gmail.com. See you next time.